Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And who needs Quibi? Today's guest is doing some really cool work with bite-sized anthologies on Instagram. Ryan Murphy from Welcome to the Horror Show is here. Welcome to this horror show. Hey, what's going on, George? How are you, my friend? I'm doing really well. So I have been checking out your show on Instagram, like I said, and it's really, really cool. I... I wasn't sure how I was going to dig the the sort of bite-sized chunks anthology sort of thing, but uh, you know it really works for me. You get your scares, you get in, you get out, and you're ready to go. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that, man. Yeah, we uh, we obviously were trying to think of something new that we could we could do, just because I don't think most of us have a ton of money lying around to do a feature, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, so we were like, what can we do that would be fun? Uh, that would obviously kind of cater to our love of horror and at the same time kind of take it into a new direction. And you mentioned Quibi, obviously. And like, you know, I I think later this year, if I'm not mistaken, Steven Spielberg is coming out with his own kind of horror anthology for that platform. And so we were like, you know what, let's just try to do our own and try to do our own thing with it. And, you know, I grew up loving Tales from the Crypt and Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone is my all-time favorite show. I think it's absolutely incredible. I still watch it constantly, even though I've seen every episode a million times. And um, we really wanted to hearken to that. So I'm glad that you liked it. That's awesome. And yeah, definitely uh, the Twilight Zone is absolutely incredible. I I think it still holds up incredibly well as well. Me and my dad, uh, every year on on New Year's Day, used to watch the Twilight Zone marathon. So I definitely have a lot of... uh, fond memories wrapped up in uh, in that show so Th- those are the best marathons man i mean those are so oh, yeah. much fun you just watch one after another and the, and the crazy thing like you said dude like the way it was shot even back then it still holds up it looks oh, yeah. beautiful and like the the performances on most of these episodes are really good and the stories are just like simple enough and morality tale enough that you you they don't really ever get stale Mm -hmm. yeah they they continue to apply to modern events because it's more about the human condition than it is about specific events in human history 100 percent is that would you say that that's how you got into horror in general i i would say that was one of the big things my you know just like you man my, my dad growing up was a big halloween guy and what we used to do is is there was a neighbor that we used to go over to his house and he'd always have the black and white horror films on. So the Universal Monsters, Young Frankenstein, you know, things of that nature. And that's kind of where I got my first taste of really liking horror. And ever since then, it's been a gradual increase in like kind of devouring each decade of horror. And I think that anthologies were definitely a huge thing for me because I love these self-contained stories that we can tell in in, in horror that I really don't think apply to most others. I guess sci-fi a little bit, but really nothing else. And like what you notice with horror, I think more than any other genre, and I'm sure you know this, Horror fans will argue to death about anything, like when it comes to their stuff. <laughs> what? No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that will argue to death about anything. And that's the great thing about the genre, though. Like, I don't know if there's any other genre that really provides that type of fanfare, fervor, passion rather than horror. And, and um, for me, it was just a matter of, yeah, man, I, I got into it slowly. The Twilight Zone was a, was a gatekeeper of like, hey, here's enjoy this. And then it was like Tales from the Crypt, here, enjoy this. And then it was getting into the filmmakers themselves, getting into John Carpenter, getting into George Romero, getting into Clive Barker, getting into these guys who had a real auteur sense. And then you start to just devour everything. And then now you're on a, a pathway of like, I'll, I'll watch the schlockiest of schlock. I don't care. <laughs> 
Definitely. I, I think that that's a, a familiar tale for a lot of our listeners. Oh, I, for, for sure. I mean, I, I would imagine the same. And, I, and, and so just just refresh my memory. How did you get into it? What, what was your deal for getting into horror? I have kind of the other very common tale where I got scared off very, very young. <laughs> Okay, okay. You know, you kind of have this nervous fascination with it, despite having been scared off, or perhaps because you got scared off. And so I would always read the Wikipedia articles about horror movies that were coming out because I liked to hear the stories, but, but, you know, I, I didn't think I could handle the actual movie. And, you know, I, I would, I would read books that were just enough, but not too scary for me. And then eventually, I, I, you know, just trying to be a good film critic, I was like, it's impossible for me to have a well-rounded film education and completely ignore one genre. It's just not yeah. possible. Yeah. And so I started just kind of doing exposure therapy, basically, where I <laughs> watched um, a lot of the like campier classics like Friday the 13th, where they are still good movies, but where far enough removed from those special effects and that kind of style of storytelling where you you don't feel as invested and uh, in the now of it as you do with maybe some more modern stuff. And so being able to watch that at kind of a remove made it a lot easier for me to get used to it. And then, uh, you know, slowly but surely you work your way up. You go from Friday the 13th to Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a lot scarier. Mm-hmm. And then you go to Hellraiser, which mm-hmm. is a lot scarier. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. slowly but surely you make your way up. Well, so. what I love about that too, uh, I really love about that too, George, is like the fact that like horror is so inherently nostalgic, right? Like I feel like for most people, horror, it takes them back somewhere. And that's yeah. why we have such a... Uh, we hold on to those decades that we got into horror because it's like, well, that that's the movie. You know, that's the era that got me into horror. So <laughs> I think that's the scariest. And it's funny because the movie that we're talking about today, Lord of Illusions, which I consider my my favorite horror movie of all time, and where I, at least I'm going to argue that that's my favorite horror movie of all time. I, it was nostalgic for me when I first watched it because I, I don't know if you were, you know, again, I don't know if this was a time period for you that you were watching these, but like I grew up watching the Sci-Fi Channel a lot before the Sci-Fi Channel kind of got in into original programming right and they would sh- when it was still the i and not the yeah, y correct yes 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 that's a good way of putting that that's perfect uh the the thing about it is is like you know you watch these movies on there man and dude they had some really crazy movies on there like they they oh, showed yeah. phantasm they showed they showed lord of illusions and like that's where i got my first taste and i was i was scared fucking shitless i really was uh, hey, definitely understandable. Before we get into the actual movie, I did want to ask also, um, is there a subgenre that you particularly gravitate towards? And also, is that different uh, in terms of what you like to create versus what you like to watch? Mm, that's a good question, man. I, I think for me, I feel like as horror fans, we're always more driven to the villain than we are the heroes. Uh, mm-hmm. Just because we we are kind of getting into the like the psyche of like what what could make somebody do that like what what darkness do i have in myself that could make me do that so i always really gravitated towards those films with like very dark like messages like hellraiser uh like you know you would have tales from the crypt because like the crypt keeper was the star of that show they really like it, it, even though they had a ton of stars on the show it was really about the crypt keeper and what everyone remembers from that show is the crypt keeper and just like we were talking about twilight zone what really everyone remembers is kind of rod serling's narrations and so mm-hmm. for me you know when i look back on those when i look back on like the horror that i like it's almost like yeah i like the darkness more than i like the light and i love 
really good character dramas, I think, too. I mean, like, you know, I'm thinking about Hereditary, right? Like, that movie was just fucking awesome because of its character development. It's it's really inherent character development that made you feel that eeriness. I think about the witch of just it really enveloping you in this terror and, and you feeling like you're there. And I think that that's the kind of stuff that I like. And to a certain extent, I guess that's the kind of stuff that I create. I mean, we for, for our show, we created, you know, the first episode that I wrote and directed, Ping, was based off my personal experiences as an Uber and Lyft driver. And it's fucking scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, there's a lot of scary interactions with that. And so I tried to use that. And, and I think the best stuff usually comes from from your own personal experiences, for sure. Definitely. And uh, I think to your point about uh, kind of horror exploring kind of the darkness um, and how there's kind of this emphasis on the villain uh, in a lot of horror movies, I think that horror is a particularly empathetic genre in that you're constantly being asked to put yourself in the shoes of either victim or villain, depending on the POV of the shot or the movie or the, mm-hmm. like just the tone. And I think that it does that a lot more than in other movies where you're much more just a passive observer. I can't think of any other genre where there's nearly as many POV shots. No, <laughs> there's no, you're totally right, man. And I think another point you kind of brought up too is like, we're always asking like, what's the morality of the character that's dying, right? Like, because, mm-hmm. because as an audience, you know, you don't want to, you don't want characters we like to die because you have sympathy for them. But at the same turn, you know, with these slasher films and, and where you had constant body deaths, you know, I just, my girlfriend and I just rewatched uh, Friday the 13th, six and seven. And just like, you're 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 seeing so little character development, but at the same time, the, the characters you don't like, you're like, yeah, just kill them, Jason. Just, <laughs> just chop their head off, and and you're fine with it. Yeah, especially in seven, they're all really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. They really are. Oh God, kill them all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. So. Great, great answer. Now that we've uh, gotten through that, let's definitely jump right into the actual movie that we're here to talk about today, a buried classic we were saying off air, the 1995 Clive Barker movie, Lord of Illusions. And mm-hmm. uh, as you mentioned to me, he uh, he only directed three features. And of those three, you know, you definitely hear Hellraiser talked about all the time. For sure. Sometimes you get some people talking about Nightbreed as an underrated movie. Cult um, classic. You know, yeah. David Cronenberg is in it. I actually really like his performance as Decker in that movie. Um, it's got a lot of cool practical effects, but those two movies absolutely get the lion's share of discussion when it comes to Barker to the mm-hmm. point where when you mentioned this movie to me, I, I like didn't even occur to me that this was a, the, the, the third Clive Barker. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's dude, it's buried. Like you said, it's really a buried film. I mean, we were talking off air about the fact that like this movie is so hard to find at this point, which is kind of crazy that a Clive Barker film with this with this would be this hard to find, considering he only made three, he only directed mm-hmm. three. And so for me, yeah, this was a movie that just it's always stuck with me. I mean, it's it's so funny because you watch it, and I think it, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes, I think it's got like a sixty-one percent or something like that. And I'm like, that's that feels low. And, you know, I mean, and Hellraiser's got 70. And I'm like, wow, these are really harsh. Awesome, yeah, these, are, these are really <laughs> harsh reviews of these movies. I don't know what people were expecting. But, yeah, I I absolutely love it. I, it's such a cool idea. And it's such a cool algamation, I feel like, of all of the stuff that Clive Barker kind of talks about in horror. Because I think the way it goes for Clive Barker to me is, like, you always see with him his ideas of sexuality 
coming out within horror. I think that there's no doubt that that's a very big through line in a lot of his films and, and, and what he's written and what he's produced and what he's directed. And he's just, you know, my girlfriend and I were watching it and she's like, this is fucking brutal. I was like, yeah, this is a brutal movie. It really isn't like the practical effects are absolutely fantastic in this. Oh, absolutely. And for people who aren't familiar with Clive Barker, in addition to Hellraiser, Nightbreed, Lord of Illusions, he's also a prolific writer and painter as well, uh, with his novellas and short stories leading to not only his own directed work, but Candyman. Uh, so plenty yep. of clout mm-hmm. on Barker's name, especially considering his approach to psychosexual theming and a bondage aesthetic sort of contemporizing the Geiger-esque sexuality of horror mm-hmm. for a modern and more sh- mainstream audience. No, for, I mean, dude, uh, you hit it on the head. I think that that's exactly what he did. And I think that the horror genre you can actually kind of look at when when Hellraiser comes out, I think that threw the horror genre for a complete loop. They're like, wow, this is this is really brutal. This is really violent. And yet it's still a very good character study movie. And it had an obviously iconic villain in Pinhead. But the idea that the more his work kept going, he really kind of delved deeper into that. And with Lord of Illusions, for me at least, you know, when I look at it, it's like a very interesting you know, work through of magic and what, what makes us like magic, what makes us not like magic, and then kind of like what, where is the horror in magic, which I, I feel like is something that is never really touched upon in most films. I was going to mention this later, but this is as good a time as any. It, so it, it opens up on this great intro text, and we'll talk more about the cultural context in a sec, but it, it opens up on this great intro text that says, there are two worlds of magic. One is the glittering domain of the illusionist. The other is a secret place where magic is a terrifying reality. Here, men have the power of demons, and death itself is an illusion. And that, for me, I'm in right away. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> dude, I love. I, yeah, it was funny. I'm watching that in the just the overall like I think um, lore that Clive Barker creates with this movie just throughout the entire film is so cool. Like that, I think is the coolest aspect of the film. It's just this world building he does that you feel like, yeah, this feels like I'm there. Like I, I totally get where this aspect is coming from. And there's obviously a very big film noir element running through oh, the yeah. film with Bacula's character and and just and, and I'm I'm a sucker for noir. So I think that's also why I absolutely love this movie and I think it's just great because it really combines those noir elements with a very grotesque horror feel. Absolutely. And I I think that part of what draws me to this movie in terms of this sort of world building that you're talking about is that I love media where magic is not just like, all right, I got my wand, I'm popping off Mm -hmm. with Accio bag Mm -hmm. of chips every time I'm too lazy to get up off the couch. (laughs) Expecto Patronum, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's like, I like magic (laughs) to be dangerous and deliberate. And like, this promises that deliberateness immediately. And I was going to say, man, like, look at the cast that they assembled for this movie, right? I mean, like, I mean, Femme Jensen, you got in here, you've got obviously Scott Bakula as the lead, which I feel like was his kind of, I, I think this was a very big push by the studio to get him more leading man roles for him to be in this. Right, um, Quantum Leap had just ended in yeah. 1993, so mm-hmm. this was definitely, he was hot off that. And, and look, he's a great actor, and I mean, look, I, I think the underrated, two underrated people in the cast here that really just shine in this movie is Kevin O'Connor as, as Swan. And then you also have uh, Daniel Von Bargen as Nix, who's fantastic in the limited screen time that he's given. I think that they all get a chance to shine because Barker makes these very adult horror movies and not just adult in their like, oh, sexy and titillating. It, they're adult in terms of like things are things exist in shades of gray. Mm-hmm. And it's more of an, like you said, an exploration of that darkness 
than it is like ah scary monster <laughs> even though those things do exist in the in these worlds no f- for sure and i mean it's wild to me too we're just discussing the overall like film of it i mean this they're saying the budget was about 11 million for this film and it only grossed 13 million which is wild to me mm-hmm. that this film really did not do well because it really had a lot of the elements that you would want in a great horror flick. It has a good cast. It has a very solid story. It has a great director. It has a good premise. But for some reason, audiences just did not gravitate to this thing that like, I, I just feel like the studio thought that they would. And I don't obviously know Barker's history after this in terms of what he went through. But, you know, most of his films really were not big commercial successes. He had one later on with, um, with Gods and Monsters, which he produced. But most of these movies that he made really only either broke even or they they lost money. And so I don't know if studios just kind of lost interest in him at that point. And they were like, yeah, we're done with this. But it's wild to me because on paper, this movie should have been a smashing hit. Yeah, it's it, that's really interesting to me as well. And I wonder if there's a certain element of him getting frustrated that led to him sort of leaving the Hollywood system. Because this movie might have done better, but the theatrical version of this movie is pretty much considered to be garbage. Like it yeah. was overzealously cut in the editing room, uh, eliminating not just several horror moments, but also several of the story beats. And so, you know, I, I'm, I think that it, it really sucks that it feels like it kind of got torpedoed a little bit like that. Um, when maybe it could have done much better than just barely recouping its budget. Um, no, I agree with you. And it's funny. Every time I talk to horror fans about the movie, they're always like, Oh yeah, that movie rocks. And like, it's, it, it seems to have definitely picked up steam as time mm. has gone on as being a forgotten classic that people now watch and they go, yeah, actually that was really good. Um, and like you said, I mean, if you can get it, the director's cut is a 100% the way to go because they, they literally they chopped off almost 12 minutes of the movie uh, from the director and the, and the theatrical cut, which is quite a lot. Um, yeah. and, and it, important stuff, in my opinion, not it, just like, oh, there's an extra second of the screw turning into it, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> which is which is an amazingly good scene, by the way. That scene yeah. is so awesome. Yeah, yeah it's gross. It's really. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's um, very good. And so, yeah, so as far as cast, like we said, you've got Scott Bakula, uh, we got Famke Jansen in just her second movie role at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she'd great. go on to play uh, Jean Grey in the X-Men movies. Mm-hmm. Shout out to my X-Men fans. Mm-hmm. And like you said, we have uh, Daniel Von Bargen as Nix. He's really great. And Barry Del Sherman as Butterfield, who I really thought was uh, really spectacular. Yeah, as well. he, was, he was very good. I, I, I actually loved Kevin O'Connor because you see him, what the work he does in this movie as opposed to The Mummy is so different. I mean, like mm-hmm. in The Mummy, he plays like this sniveling servant guy. And in this, he's far more subdued. He's far more subtle. And you could tell that he's weary of just like this power that's been given to him and that he has and that he doesn't want it to fall in the wrong hands. I thought he did a really, he, he to me is almost more of the protagonist of the film than, than Scott Bakula is. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely could see that being uh, being argued. It's it's interesting kind of the way that we get to see him in two such different character aspects, too, where in the beginning of the movie, he's so fired up and, and desperate to, you know, make this happen. And then, and then towards the end, he's very, like you said, weary and sort of over it all. So definitely a, a great performance by him. And the, the music, I definitely want to shout out the music as well, done by Simon Boswell, who absolutely knocks it out of the park. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. 
Fantastic. Yeah, it's a really cool blend of like L.A. and horror sounds. He, he does a really good job of kind of conjuring uh, the imagery of both. I mean, again, this this like you said, this movie came out in '95, which is now you know what we're, we're 25 years removed from this movie. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, considering this is 25 years 30. old, oh yeah, yeah, God, yeah, no, you're, no, yeah, 25, 25. yeah, 25, <laughs> yeah, 25. We're good at math. We can math. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can do it. Uh, the 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 thing about it is, for a twenty five year old film that was made in the mid nineties, I just feel like there's there's a couple moments sure where the where the where the special effects kind of lose it a little bit in terms of what we can do now. But overall, I mean, the 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 uh, the practical effects work in this film is still incredible. I think that the Definitely. make the makeup looks amazing. Like you said, that screw scene is awesome. There's several other scenes where you know. The guys are sliced up. The guys are slicing themselves up. There's that scene where they're all getting sucked into the uh, into the floor. I mean, there's a lot of really cool moments in this film that I think, again, are I think in a different world would be like considered a cult, like a this is a cult icon type of movie. And now it's like it's you can barely find it on streaming platforms. It's it's wild. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and I, I really like a lot of this movie. Like the text at the beginning is really cool, and it's just such a great strong start because not only do you have that. But then it starts off with this really sweet panning shot as they dolly through the compound Mm -hmm. uh, in the Mojave Desert in 1982. And it just gets more and more unsettling as you as you go through because you start to see the corpses of sacrificed chickens and pigs (laughs) and burning junk. And you're just like, oh, my God, who is living here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing, too, is that this movie, like, like you said, the very beginning when you when you get into this movie, like right away, I remember watching this as a kid. Um, on the sci-fi channel and I was just it, it's just an eeriness that kind of runs through this film you're always like is what's actually happening what's going on here in that beginning scene where you know you have kind of Nix as this this kind of cult magic leader and then you have you know a swan coming in as his like you know kind of disgruntled protege who's coming to essentially stop him from sacrificing a young woman and it's like this this like you're saying that we kind of get into this world where we're like this is this is fucking weird. Like, this is just really unsettling. This is kind of gross. There's a bunch of these, you know, cultists kind of like, uh, you know, mutilating themselves for Nick and uh, Nick's. And you have this very Barker-esque aesthetic already coming out, which is like, let's show this gore. Let's really get into this. What, what are these people wanting? What do these people want out of magic? And I think that that is kind of what takes you through the, the rest of this movie. But that opening scene is is pretty awesome in terms of like, the just the allure you start getting from like okay we know Nix is very powerful we know that Swan and him have a history what type of history that's not really clear we also know that he wants to sacrifice a young girl and Swan's not about that so there's a a lot of stuff that happens in that first 10-15 minutes that really kind of throws you into this thing yeah and like you said it doesn't do that at the expense of that aesthetic that Barker works so hard to establish I mean not only is there a fucking huge mandrill that came out of nowhere? <laughs> that thing truly shocked me. Uh, played by Teddy the Mandrill, so there you go. Uh, he he does get a credit in the in the credits, which I appreciate. And you, so, like, you have this big mandrill. You have um, Nix confronts Swan at the beginning while dangling from like a crucifix made of rib cages. Oh yeah, that that thing is so cool looking. You're like, what the fuck? is that yeah. thing and yeah it's just bloody and just kind of like flesh hanging off of it it's it's it looks amazing yeah and, and so you get all these great stuff right at the beginning and after this initial confrontation with the cultists where swan uh, and some of the other former cultists are trying to prevent the sacrifice butterfield who is nix's 
assistant manages to escape. And Swan is attacked magically by Nyx, and he does that super fucked up thing from the thing where he pushes his fingers into the face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You, you get that a couple times in this movie, and it's, yeah. it's a never, like, it's never not unsettling. You're always like, oh my, oh god. my god, it looks, ah, you just. It freaks just... me out there, and it freaks me out here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's awesome. And, and like yeah. you were talking about Butterfield, I didn't, you know, that's a great way of putting it. He is really the assistant. I mean, like, that's the thing, too, is that, you know, Barker kind of weaves this throughout the movie of like kind of playing this along with with the magic aesthetic mm -hmm. and like he is Nix's assistant that's what he is in the movie he's he's the assistant of like hey I gotta bring my my master's stuff I gotta bring him back throughout the film and like it's very clever how they did that and they tied that into assistants and magic which are like yeah we have to bring our our, our you know our magician what what he needs to get out of this trick uh, this kidnapped girl who was who was there about to be sacrificed winds up shooting Nix through the heart with Swan's gun and Swan fastens this ironwork mask over Nix's head, which, as we already mentioned, is fucking gross. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really it's really one of the most iconic scenes of the movie. I feel like mm. just because they, it's obviously like that that instance of that. I remember watching that as a kid, and it fucking freaked me out. I mean, you're seeing yeah. these drills literally drilling into his skull, um, and then and then there, there's a clamp that goes down right on his eyes, and you feel like. It really is to me like a homage to Hellraiser a little bit of like that those very mm. torture-esque type of sequences that Barker was good at. And it's just gory, gross, good fun. I mean, it's it's really it's really a pretty cool scene. Absolutely. And we're 10 minutes in. Yeah, I mean, yeah that's the thing. Yeah, <laughs> 10 minutes in the movie, and you're already like, wow, I'm already seeing someone's <laughs> eyes get like gouged out. I'm already seeing like a, 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 a spikes go through somebody's eyes from a from an Iron Maiden. You're like, holy shit, what the hell yeah. is this movie going to do? It's intense. It's intense right away, and I really appreciate that. It jumps ahead 13 years later. Um, oh, Swan, I forgot to mention, Swan says uh, they're going to bury Nick so deep that no one will ever find him. There you go. Right. Cut to 13 years later, and we see New York City private eye Harry Damore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Best, best, great detective name. I mean, best detective name ever. I mean, come on, Harry Demore. I mean, what, what, what? and then, and then, of course, we have the rain of New York falling mm -hmm. down. Oh, it's a private eye. He's oh, been, yeah. you know, he's been drinking. He's been knocking back a couple. He's there, Scott Bakula, doing his best. Like he's, he's putting his hand on the refrigerator. Like I can't do this anymore. <laughs> this is, this is too much. It's great. It's awesome. Oh, I, I tried being married. Once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The throwaway line of like, all right, there's your character development. Yeah, you're. Guy was married one time. The, the 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 best part about that whole sequence when they introduce him actually is the exorcism scenes that they kind of intercut with them because spooky stuff. Those are fucking awesome because I yeah. mean watching those made me be like, can Clive Barker direct an exorcist movie? Like fucking please, because those were creepy as hell. Yeah, I would love a Harry Demore series like we got Indiana Jones stuff. Oh, like, dude, just that's, a, that's a great idea, George. Like, ser I'm, I'm being dead serious when I say it. That is a fucking killer idea for a series like now for Netflix. Like, you have something where, like, you know, that's almost like Coljack the Night Stalker status, right? Like, yeah. you have this private eye following them around, and he they, they deals with a bunch of different supernatural things. And, and just, again, like, watching this uh, scene, that, that exorcism scene is so cool because they intercut it with him kind of you know, having this conversation with his boss about, hey, what, you know, do you want to take this job? And he's been dealing with this this case that, again, I, you wish they got into a little bit more because you're like, that could have played, a, I think, a bigger role in the essence of like 
kind of tying this film together a little bit more for, for mm-hmm. Dufour's character, which they try to do, but I think that it, it could have been dealt with more. But those scenes, especially with, like, the demon coming out and, and attacking Demora, telling him to, you know, to, to join the darkness or see the darkness, I, it's, so, it's so cool. I love that. It is. It really is. And so, basically, he's freaked out and, and disheveled and tired from that exorcism case, and so... When he gets this job offer to go and just follow some guy for some insurance fraud out in sunny L.A., he says, well, I guess I could use the vacation, and he <laughs> takes the job. <laughs> hey, you want to tra- hey, trade in this rain for palm trees, Demore? Come on, man. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. uh, he he goes, and, and during the investigation, he follows this guy to a fortune teller shop owned by Quaid from the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's attacked by this guy with pointed teeth and crazy strength, and... Quaid literally had, like throws him out of the window. <laughs> <laughs> then, I know. I, lo- I love that scene because he's looking at the window and you're like, okay, he's going to try to throw him out. He gets him and he just punches him like right out the window. He just lands yeah. right on the cement. And you're like, oh, that was yeah. freaking sweet. It was, it's very sweet. And then not only do you get this like fun little action scene, afterward, Damore finds Quaid and he's just got these like really grotesque like scalpel stab wounds from being tortured by Butterfield. Yeah, they, those that scene is pretty intense too. Like you're looking at it and you're like, how many knives and like just sharp objects does this guy have in his face right now? I mean, it li- literally looks yeah. like he's just like covered with with piercings. It's it's pretty it's pretty gross. And again, it's very it's very Clive Barker esque. I mean, he he's he's never shied away from showing us these very visceral kind of intense images and and i feel like that's one of the reasons this movie is is just you know again so amazing it's you know my favorite and i think the best horror film ever is just because you have these scenes that are just so visceral and again even with it being 25 years old you look at it now and you're like damn this is brutal it's not it's not an easy not an easy watch the the flesh where it's like the stabbings took place is really like beat up it's gross <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the makeup effects they use again the practical effects are just so good in this movie and and they they really do continue throughout and 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 really i think carry the heart of like the the dark side of magic you know in this movie they do and and uh also i i think that again is is very clive barker it's that sort of sharp piercing of flesh these like knives and pins and and all these sort of like insertion of of metal into a body is is very Barker again, sort of that um, bondage aesthetic that he he plays with a lot. And it's something I feel like George we can like really relate to as an audience. It's like when you when you see that happen, you know, when you see those things happen when they happen in real time in the film, you're like cringing. You're like, oh mm-hmm. god, ugh, ugh. like it, yeah. it makes you have a very visceral reaction to that because oh, we yeah. all know with with what kind of like cutting ourselves feels like or what having, you know, something stuck in us feels like. And it's like, that's not a good feeling and that can't mm-hmm. feel good. So I think that's yeah. definitely part of the horror of this for sure. Absolutely. And so as Quaid dies, he says he's not afraid to die, but he warns Damore that the Puritan is coming, which is the name that Nix gave himself at the beginning of the movie. When Damore leaves, he finds that the guy he threw out the window got up and walked away. Look at that. I mean, it's just, it wasn't that long of a fall, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, just, just, a few, just a few broken bones. Yeah, that's all. And, uh, and so Swan, who is now a famous stage illusionist, lives in Beverly Hills in a mansion with his wife, Dorothea, who's played by Famke Jansen. 
Who's, and, who looks uh, st- who looks stunning, by the way. I oh mean, how, yeah. I mean, God, she looks absolutely gorgeous, and you can see her evolution too as a, as an actress from the beginning of this film to to you know her later roles. She, she's a phenomenal actress, and I don't think she gets enough credit. Yeah, she really does a, a spectacular job in this, especially considering that it it is only her second movie role. I think that she is really good from the beginning. And I think you see, like like you were saying, I think you see very much so like her. The, the way she was going to ascend. You're like, yeah, there's a star right there. There's no doubt about it. She's mm-hmm. going to do something in the business for sure. Absolutely. Uh, and when she's informed that Nix's followers have murdered Quaid, she suggests that they hire Demora to investigate the murder. Demora agrees and she invites him to see Swan's magic show. And this is a dope scene. This is a really, <laughs> so really fun. cool, really cool scene. Yeah. And I think this is what I think is one of the best elements of the film in terms of how they present us with magic. Cause it's like, I think most of us or a lot of people who, who have seen magic before have gone to a, a, a big style magic show and seen illusions done live. And so that's part of this allure right here. And that scene where, where, uh, where you have Swan getting taken down and there's just an empty body in this, you know, in this, this casket that gets, that gets taken down and then it explodes and he's just magically there <laughs> floating. You're like, this is fucking dope. Yeah. You're like, you're to- I'm totally in. Uh, it's so over the top uh, yeah. and fun. And like, there's dancing and a skeleton <laughs> yeah. and pouring sand and lightning. And you're yeah. like, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah you're, like, you're totally in it at that point. And yeah, there's just, it's like half naked women dancing around. You're like, and okay, go, like a little something for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. You got something for everybody. You got Scott Bakula's character. Like, Oh man, this he's good. He's real good. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's great. And Swan is performing a new illusion up there where a bunch of swords drop around him and it, Wow, shocker, goes wrong. He's killed <laughs> yeah, on stage. Yeah, I love I love Demore's character when he's like uh when he's like, Is has he ever done this one before? <laughs> I know, you know, you get the you know, the very classic like, oh god, he doesn't look like he's having fun as he's like screaming yeah. in pain, by the way. Yeah. And like, yeah. So yeah, they they wait a long time before people start rushing up on that. <laughs> yeah, they're like, no, no, it's fine. It's, it's all good. Don't worry about it. He's fine. <laughs> yeah. But Damore assumes that it was Butterfield and his lackey who caused it to go wrong. But they confront him after the show and say it wasn't them because they they ask him who killed uh, right. who who killed Swan. And in his escape attempt, Damore finally does kill this sharp-toothed lackey uh, <laughs> by being impaled on a pipe, which is not a fun way to go, in my no. opinion. No, and it's very, and, and you know, again, it's a very sexual, like, kind of death. I mean, you mm-hmm. look at the, the way that that thing is shaped, it, it kind of looks like a penis, and, like, sure. the way that it just goes right through him, and you're like, okay, okay, interesting. And so this idea that, like, you know, they kind of run it through the movie as well. They keep saying it, like, flesh, you know, is not forever and like this is yeah it's a prison and so this idea that like you know these things are happening to these people in these very visceral violent ways that are kind of removing their flesh is pretty is pretty awesome and that that scene is is really cool and scott bacula like half his face is just bloody as hell he's just (laughs) you know he's just got punched you know a bunch by this guy and then he throws him into this you know uh, this this big pipe rams into him very realistic injuries for Scott Bakula, it feels like, where ordinarily, like, someone in these sort of action scenes would get, like, the shit kicked out of them and then have, like, a, bl- a black eye. And, like, Scott Bakula is beat the hell up. Oh, yeah. His, uh, his, character gets, his character gets fucked up throughout the movie. I think there's no doubt. Like, I mean, he's, he, he's bleeding profusely in at least two big chunks of the film where you're like, yeah. wow, this is, yeah, he's getting the shit kicked out of him. Yeah, and uh, and I think it's interesting. I don't have it written down, but I think that the other half of that phrase was um, 
flesh is a prison and magic is the key or magic it, is the escape. Is mag- yeah, like that's, that. that's correct. Yeah. Magic. Yeah. Magic is the escape. I think I believe and, that's it. Yeah. And so your point about how you keep seeing, you know, people die in these really like grotesque ways or who are like, they're constantly removing like self mutilating and stuff. It's they're doing it in this pursuit of magic most of the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting to see how they're, attempting to shed that prison in search of this escape in uh, it's it's just all works together really well Well, and Uh, and i think too you have with the nick's character you know with this idea that like you know death is not you know death is an illusion right like mm -hmm. that's a whole point of this like what what does nick's have to say to us about death about what what comes next about what is this next offering and i think when we see magic we're always not trusting our eyes right like that's the big thing about magic we're like well did that really happen or not and so when it comes to this film i think with the great themes that run throughout it with barker's trying to harp on is like well we don't ever really see death right like most of the time we we don't experience it a lot of people die in hospital beds and and what have you and you and you'll see their their eyes closed but we don't see death in terms of like Mm. see that viscerality and i think when you see that you're like holy shit you're like yeah this this person's dead and you know obviously in this movie they're not always that way definitely i also think that it's not an accident that they say death is an illusion and there's so much emphasis on the difference between illusions and magic in this movie Mm -hmm. in terms of the reality of magic versus an illusion. Well, well so. what what does Swan's character say? He says illusionists get deals in Vegas, and then magicians get stepped on. So get that, burned, yeah, I guess. get burned. Yeah, get burned. That's <laughs> it. That's it. So yeah. Yes, uh, and as my good friend Joe Bluth once said, <laughs> a trick is something a whore does for money. <laughs> This is very, Um, this is very true. But so Damore, he does some more investigating, which first of all, let me just say that, uh, as you mentioned, there's a lot of noir elements to this and I love it. So uh, when we get like three scenes in a row of him just investigating, I'm like, yeah, Yeah, they really, they really delve deep into the investigation aspect. I mean, it was kind of, it kind of blew me away watching it again, really how much of the story is just him trying to figure out what's going on. And I love Mm -hmm. to, I live in Los Angeles. So I love the fact that they use the actual magic castle. Like that's so cool because no one is usually allowed to film in there. It's a very secretive place. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know how much you know about it, but I mean, you cannot get into the magic castle without an invitation you can't go in with somebody unless they're they know a member or they are a member and so the fact that they shot there for this film is so cool and those scenes where uh, you know Demore is working with um, a, another fellow magician and they're kind of searching out and investigating things it's it's really one of the coolest parts of the film and it really adds a lot of allure to like you believe that he's an, an investigator You're like yeah he's following the leads he's trying to figure out what's going on and then it's whatever it's going to lead him and and they the way they tie in a such a really special magic place like the magic castle to this film is also really cool it also i think does a really good job of lending an air of authenticity to the rest of the story by putting this real life thing in that is a relatively famous landmark in la you know people are like oh i know that i know this world Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's all of a sudden that much more real because you have something to latch onto like that as opposed to oh it's just this fantastical city where magic is real well and the other big thing too is like i've got some friends who are magicians and like i mean the magic castle is pretty much the pinnacle when it comes to Mm -hmm. like yeah obviously yes like like swan says you can get a a vegas 
you know, job as an illusionist. But when it comes to magic, when it comes to actually magicians doing tricks, they want to be at the magic castle. That's where they want right. to go. They, that's where they want to hone their craft. And so the fact, like you said, they have this very famous landmark, especially in the magic world, as plain as almost like a um, place where all of these secrets are being stored really lends a lot of authenticity and adds just a really awesome element to the film. Damore is investigating here and he hears Nyx described as a legend and that Nyx was uh, believed to be the one who taught Swan. And so he goes to follow up on Swan's past and he hears Jennifer Desiderio, Mm -hmm. who is one of the initial rescuers from the beginning, um, insist that Nyx is coming back and then throw herself in front of a car. Yeah, she just she's she's walking, and the, that nun is trying so hard to stop her, but but gosh, she just she's not fit quick enough, and then boom, <laughs> yeah. you know, just uh, it's it's just right into a car, dead. Yeah, <laughs> so. and it's funny too because you see this like her throwing herself in front of this car, and you're like, oh wow, okay, I'm gonna get a couple seconds to breathe now at least. <laughs> not the case. Um, <laughs> probably, I think that the next scene is probably the most like genuinely upsetting to me in terms of horror, and you don't even actually see anything it's just the aftermath but a bunch of the cult members from the beginning all received a letter that said homecoming time and it's just the aftermath of them all having like killed their families no problem oh oh yeah dude it's yeah that part is very i mean that the the cultists in the movie honestly might be one of the scariest parts of this film i mean really Mm -hmm. in terms of just they're very very violent in terms of you know we'll get into it later but i mean you talk about the near the the end of the movie what they're doing to themselves and you're like what the fuck Mm -hmm. is going on and again it's genuinely like you said it's genuinely upsetting kind of like very visceral it's it's kind of hard to watch and like you said the fact that it it was uh what, what movie am i thinking of right here the invitation did you see that film where were they Not all yet i oh, heard it's really amazing yeah yeah it. you do you gotta watch that because it, it really that scene reminds me of like a basis for what the invitation was and mm-hmm. um it's it's really like you said it's a very kind of upsettingly you know genuine great horror moment that's that's again just like kind of just put in here really quickly. It's not very long. It's just this little snippet, but you're like, wow, that's really fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, former former guest Darcy Armstrong has been yelling at me to watch that for a while now. So I think you'll love a, it. It's, it's a on great my movie. list. Yeah, I think yeah. you'll absolutely love it. And so one other ter- thing that I really like in terms of the actual investigation of this is that not only do we get this scene in the Magic Castle, we get a second scene in the <laughs> Magic <laughs> Castle, <laughs> and uh, he comes back to the to the repository this special room there that supposedly contains every magic secret known to man and uh thanks to this repository and and by the way how fucking cool is that like there's a like there's a there's a secret room inside of the magic castle where all of these secrets are stored like i fucking love that shit like that's just so film noir-y it's so very much like tied into horror and again like i'll say this again how many films about magic has really horror really touched upon i just there's just not, not many. many and yeah. so this this aspect of it is so cool that there's like this secret room that's booby trapped and uh, yeah. you, you know to, <laughs> to get in there you know and, and it almost takes their arms off by getting in there and it, and it adds an element of almost like indiana jones-esque style like fun and and again kind of takes us deeper into this film noir aspect of like what were the secrets hiding what's going on yeah the guy who's with Demore. Uh, he says like, "Oh, I could have lost my hands," and you're like, "Oh, wow, that would suck." But then you're like, "Oh, also, he's a magician, so like that's <laughs> real bad news for him." Well, well and the, the thing about it too that's cool is uh, obviously Demore's character kind of references that, and he's like, "That's why 
this thing is here is because he knew, or they, you know, whoever left this here knew that like magicians are going to come search for this. And if you don't do mm -hmm. it right, you're going to get your hands chopped off. Guess what? You don't get to do magic anymore. There you go. The punishment fits the crime. Yes, and, exactly. Uh, and also that guy, uh, he says that the secret switch is corny or something and fuck you, that guy. Secret <laughs> switches are awesome. Yeah, no, he's, yeah, you get a couple of those lines in there where you, you could tell that Barker was kind of playing a little bit, winking to the audience of like, oh, this is a little bit corny, but at the same time, you're also like, yeah, but it's so fucking cool though. <laughs> yeah. Finding this repository of, of different, um, it's like the notes and stuff, he discovers that Swan's quote unquote illusions actually involved real magic. After being given the runaround by Dorothea's um, assistant, manservant, I don't even know what the hell he is, butler, I guess. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah, he's like, a, he's like a butler friend, I don't, yeah, a whole, whole host of things. That guy's been giving Damore the runaround, but finally he gets a hold of Dorothea and she reveals that she was actually the girl that Nick's kidnapped at the beginning. And although she never really loved Swan, Swan loved her, and mm -hmm. she married him out of a sense of obligation. Correct. Which is pretty dark, honestly. It, yeah. Like, well, and I think obligation, but I think you get a sense, too, that she wanted to be safe. Like, her character mm -hmm. was like, look, if I stick with Swan, he kept me safe before he can keep me safe again. Yeah. The, the, I will admit, the, the love triangle between Bakula and, uh, and Femme Jensen's character, Dorothea, and then also Swan, it's a little bit undercooked. I mean, it, you know, it could, you could have taken that probably a little bit more because you, I don't know if I buy that Demore's character and while, while Femme Jensen is absolutely fucking gorgeous i don't buy that there's necessarily chemistry right off the bat with them but at the same time it's very obvious though too that you she doesn't there's not as much uh give back with both swan and her so you're like yeah i could i could i could see why she would want to be with somebody else that maybe cares more for her yeah um and that's exactly what she does she uh she admits that she cares for him and they have sex and he reveals his insane back tattoo <laughs> <laughs> it's a yeah it's like yeah you love that scott bacula just got this sick back tattoo you're like dude this thing looks freaking tight i mean like no it's, no explanation no, at zero all. no you're like why does he have it who knows you're like but it looks it's really cool really prominent in frame too. <laughs> <laughs> in a couple of places you're like why does he have yeah, that you're like it's okay, very it, funny yeah um it kind of reminded me of the twin peaks logo uh <laughs> yeah no it's 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 very they don't go into much of that it's all good you know I'm not it's gonna, funny it, yeah uh, yeah it, it it's especially because like if it was maybe during some of the more uh, intense scenes, it might be distracting. But it's during this, like, 30-second sex scene. Like, it's not a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, 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 so he's edgy. I mean, Damore's an edgy yeah. guy. You know what I'm saying? He, he's, he was doing... He's doing uh, exorcisms. He's investigating exorcisms. And, you know, he's got a back tattoo. It's all good. It's all exactly. Good. After they have sex, they hear a noise downstairs, and Damore goes to check it out. And he's attacked by a guy who, like folds and unfolds like origami while he's covered in flames which is pretty pretty sweet it, this is one of the cgi effects and as mm -hmm. you mentioned some of these things maybe don't hold up quite as well as the practical effects but for the time i mean it, you have to remember it's 1995 i think that this looks pretty great oh. considering the context of the era it looks amazing considering the era yeah i mean again mm -hmm. in the era you would be like yeah those look great like the, the, yeah. that, they look fantastic, and and again, yeah. that's you'd be it. like, "Holy shit, a guy on fire!" Yeah, yeah, no, and <laughs> and the cool thing about that scene too is like, I love the fact that those like those it's like these snake 
fire things, like chasing mm-hmm. Demore's character. And then you get the real, really cool aspect is when he opens up the grave, and then you get that really cool practical effect, oh, which yeah. is next, which is which is really cool. But I, I, I again. The, the the CGI effects, yeah, for being 25 years old, they don't quite hold up as much. But like I was saying before, if you were watching this film back in 1995, you would not griped at all about this. You would have said, yeah, those look great. Absolutely. And as you uh, sort of implied towards, there's a really awesome practical effect here where, suspecting a ruse, Damore opens up Swan's coffin and finds out that the body is fake by literally ripping open the jaw. <laughs> yeah, and that scene too, I mean, you're watching it, you're like, oh my god, this is so gross. Like, are you serious right now? And then it just like kind of dissolves and you're like that was awesome so yeah cool. it's cool and the guy from before his name is valentin he i guess he's like swan's assistant maybe he mm-hmm. certainly seems to have a familiarity with swan's For work sure. in that he explains that he helped swan fake his death and so demore agrees to allow valentin and swan's ruse to continue but at the funeral of Swan, which finally goes off, Damore follows. Which, which by the way, that, sorry to interrupt you. I love that scene too. By the way, everybody's wearing sunglasses. It's it's it's, yeah. t- it's so LA. I mean, everybody's <laughs> like dressed to the T's, wearing sunglasses. I mean, they look good. Everybody looks really good. Hell yeah! Hey, <laughs> you're gonna be out. People are gonna see you. This is a big time uh, illusion. Well, well, and and, but, and the, the best part of that that whole scene is the classic. When you get Scott Bakula looking at the thing and then he takes off the sunglasses like, man, I got to I got to look at this thing with my clear eyes because the yeah. sunglasses just won't do. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty great. It is pretty great. And uh, and yeah, so he sees a suspicious looking man who he follows. Turns out to be Swan. Swan, who is clearly upset about Damore's new relationship with with his with wife. Dorothea. Yeah, yeah. He he starts attacking him by like throwing a car at him, which is cool. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and eventually, Damore convinces him to help put an end to Nix's cult instead of uh, trying to kill Damore, which is pretty good persuasion skills. Yeah. No. I mean, he's <laughs> as a detective, he knows how to talk. I mean, he's he's That's very right. good. But the, yeah, that car scene too, man, is really cool. I mean, that like the levitation that when it gets thrown down i mean it just explodes you're like this is great i mean like it looks again still holds up looks really cool uh Mm -hmm. and the fact too that you're just like you're seeing the effect of swan's power and i think that again that's why that character to me at least when i watch it is a little bit more of the protagonist than even the more is just because you're getting a sense from him that like this is so very personal to him everything that's happening and this idea that like yeah he he very much so has power. I think, you know, we didn't reference it, but back in the illusion scene where everybody's watching, he levitates and these two assistants are looking at each other and this guy goes, how does he do that? And he goes, yeah, he's using wires. He goes, I don't see any wires. And so it's obviously very implied throughout the film that Swan, as well as Nyx, both have the ability to perform real magic and not just, you know, illusions. Right. Yeah, it, it is cool stuff. And uh, Butterfield comes back into play here, kidnaps Dorothea, and he uses her as a hostage to force Valentin to recover Nix's body after he tortures Valentin a little bit to be like, all right, where is the corpse? And then he's like, I'll tell you. And he's that like, seems, oh, you'll do much more. Uh, yeah, that seems pretty brutal, man. I mean, yeah, he's, he's, he's sticking a knife right through the guy's, right through Valentin's eye, and he's about to pull out his eyes. I mean, it's, it's pretty gross. Oh, um, yeah. And again, just another example of, of Barker who's like, oh, you think I'm going to... Unflinching. Gonna, yeah, 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 he's like, oh, you, you, you think I'm going to go far? I'm going to go a little bit further than that and make you really uncomfortable right now. And I think that that's, again, one of the the best things that Barker does as a director. And it, one of the reasons that this movie is so awesome is because they, they will go to those places several times in that movie. And you're like, I, you, wow. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can stomach this right now. Yeah. Well, plus, I mean, 
eyes are definitely something that I feel like is a, a sticking point for a lot of people. You know, they're a very vulnerable place on your body. And uh, Yeah, you don't need them. You're fine. No, we're all good. <laughs> it's all good. And I mean, in, in movies like this, in, in uh, like Zombie 2, the Lucio Fulci uh, zombie movie, a lot of Lucio Fulci movies, to be honest, he's got a real eye thing. It's very intense every time. And uh, I I think that it's, it's a, a great trope that is uh, very effective and very scary. Yeah, so. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you 100%. And again, like that scene, just you're, you're watching him like... That, like put the knife like slowly into his eye and you're like oh my god i don't yeah mm-hmm. it's just yeah, and then th- thankfully he doesn't go further than that but you're yeah, yeah it's it's right there it could it yeah it could have you're it scared could've, yeah it could have <laughs> for sure for sure and so after he does in fact find nix's corpse butterfield takes that corpse back to the old house in the desert while demore and swan find valentin stabbed in this pit that that he had dug at the house the cultists have all returned to witness Nix's resurrection. And, oh boy, <laughs> these guys. <laughs> They're wild. Yeah. They are is. absolutely wild. Butterfield, he talks about how, like, are you are you willing to suffer to get to him? And, like, they shatter glass in the hallway and then go on their hands and knees to crawl through it. And mm-hmm. they're all cutting off their hair to burn it. But like, they ain't being careful. No, no, <laughs> so. it's very visceral. I mean, that scene for sure, I think, is one of the most visceral scenes in the film. I mean, there's no doubt that like, yeah. you're, you're watching these cultists chop off their hair and they're just bleeding profusely. Uh, you can The feed, mania yeah, that it, just is present in that scene is really, uh, it's just unsettling yeah. on a really visceral level. Yeah, it, it really is. And you can get a sense that these people are just psychotic and they're they're just, you know, completely loyal to Nick's. And and again, when I watch this movie, especially like that scene, those are the scenes I remember as a kid where I was like, I don't know if I can watch the rest of this movie. This is too much. Um, and those are very in your face. And that's what makes this such a great film. I mean, again, I don't there, there you know, there's been films that I think have pushed the, the violence aspect of this uh, of, of the horror you know since then you know you look at hostile you look at saw you look at some of these franchises but i really a lot of this stems from the work in like lord of illusions i really believe mm-hmm. that i believe that this movie people's impacted it, it, by clive barker in general when you watch his films they're just he just has visceral violence that i think that people are uh, you know still gravitating towards to today and i think that some horror makers kind of really refined later on because of the work that he did with it. I also think it's really interesting that he, in a way that I think is very rare, is able to kind of do both because he is he manages to conjure these really grotesque uh, horror moments out of visceral gore and violence that is he puts an unflinching camera eye on. But also, like, he really is good at kind of capturing the fear that exists outside of that or as a, you know, symptom of that violence. Like, when I think about... 13 years of the people being who are willing to do this just living in that family like a sleeper agent like yeah it's very disturbing it's it is it really is it really is and and i think that you you touched upon a good part too is this like this idea that like barker to me is a just a horror auteur right like in the essence of that he's just so smart and and he's Mm -hmm. smarter than your average director writer because he understands that while this violence is all going to be here. We need a story to back it up. We need yeah. something to carry this through because we need to care. And you know, you you saw like the the things that people talk about with like Hostel and Saw. It's like you know, as the as those movies went on, you, you don't really know if people care because it's like, is this just a straight torture porn? Damn, but do I really care about these characters? But in like Lord of Illusions, you're like, no, I 
I care about the story. The story's good. Like I, I want to know more. I want to know more about this these, this world and these characters. And at the same time, you're also like it's also extremely violent <laughs> so yeah, yeah absolutely i mean the the term torture porn came about just because it had that paper thin plot that just carried you from uh money shot to money shot as it were except instead of uh sex money shots it's brutal brutal violence yeah. so yeah you know, definitely, I, I think that you're absolutely right in terms of Barker being able to kind of transcend that uh, in a way that's very impressive. Agreed. Swan and Damore, who are acting on information given by the dying Valentin, arrive at this house, and Swan attacks Butterfield while telling Damore to go rescue uh, Dorothea. And so Nix, who's instructing his followers to prepare to receive his wisdom, has a little butthole open up on his forehead. <laughs> No, so so did we did we talk so so back up did we talk about the scene too where they they actually find Nix inside of the pit? The, the, um, we briefly like, kind of okay. lost over it a little. Bit, I was, I was, but, uh, I, we can certainly we can talk about. I, it I was gonna say more. I was gonna say really quickly just in that it's just that you know the scene where uh, Butterfield has all of these like sharp almost like phallic like sharp mm-hmm. objects that he's almost like a surgeon and like he's gonna use these to like you know free nicks out of this prison and stuff and it's yeah it's pretty it's pretty eerie it definitely is and i also forgot to mention that butterfield removes the mask from nicks mm-hmm. and he regenerates in a pretty freaky scene as like the color comes back to his rotted flesh and you know he never quite gets all the way back to the way he looked uh in fact he's very creepy looking but Watching his body sort of restore itself from this corpse form is uh, really, uh, it's a cool scene. It's very gross. Just fun stuff. No, it's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, that, that scene where they're, they're, he's removing, you know, again, removing the screws from him. And those are slowly coming back. And he has like, it, it really does. It, does, it kind of looks like a saw contraption on his face, right? Like yeah. it actually does look like something from the later saw films that they use as those like torture devices. Right. And, uh, and so Nix, who's now regenerated, uh, it is in fact not a butthole. It is his third <laughs> eye. <laughs> My girlfriend thought it was a butthole, so you're, you're fine with that. That's not all right. And, uh, and so it, he, he has this magic third eye, and he is pretty much at the height of his power. And he opens up a hole in the ground beneath him and Dorothea and creates a rainstorm inside the building, which is like a, a fun display of power. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, yeah, just make it rain. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. And so all of his disciples are, you know, hooting and hollering, getting uh, getting into it. They're like, this is sick. There's a rainstorm in the building. <laughs> and and uh, as it continues to rain, he turns the earth into quicksand that swallows the cultists up, declaring that only Swan is worthy of receiving his message. And I'm like, hey, that's lesson one is don't t- don't trust a cult leader. No, so, you never trust it. No, that, and that scene, too, I think we, we, we touched on it earlier, but that scene is freaking awesome because these people are mm-hmm. literally getting, like, sucked into the ground. Some of them get all the way sucked in some of them get halfway some people's like Ugh. their arm is like sticking out and you're like so this cool. is fucking ugh, this is just gross and awesome at the same time and like you have that scene where Dorothea comes back in and the guy's still alive and he's just freaking out and and, <laughs> and i think one of the guys is like fuck you nicks like yeah like yeah. as he's going under you're like man this sucks <laughs> yeah. you were the promised one yeah 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 <laughs> and so they're all dying, and Demora finds Nyx and Dorothea. And as Demora steps onto the newly hardened quicksand, Nyx sees him and says, You're not Swan. I know what you want. And he goes to drop Dorothea into the hole. Mm-hmm. But Demora rescues her as Swan enters the room. And so now Nyx is distracted, and Demora and Dorothea uh, flee, but are attacked by Butterfield now. Mm-hmm. 
who, 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 by the way, has his face like horribly disfigured because he oh, fought yes. with Swan and Swan burned like half of his face off. And you get this just like flesh rotting on the side oh, yeah. of his face. It's really yeah, gross. yeah, it's really gross. It's like the like the heat blisters. It's, yeah. That, um, oh yeah, that's yeah. it's nasty. Yeah, super nasty. <laughs> and Swan agrees to act as Nix's disciple, even answering yes when Nix says that uh, Swan would be killed by Nix after they destroyed the world, but he just wants some company until then, mm-hmm. is like literally mm-hmm. what he says. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Well, and, and it, it's a very kind of like, you know, we touched on this with Clive Barker a little bit, but it's a very kind of sexual homoerotic thing that I think that they, it's, you know, this idea that we don't know Nix and Swan's real full relationship, what happened mm-hmm. with them, but you get a sense that with Nix, he views Swan as his like disciple, his true disciple, his protege, and almost like his assistant. And like you see that throughout the film of this this use of assistance. And like again, it's just this idea that I think Barker always kind of explored in his movies, where you know Barker was a gay man, and I think that for him it was like I want to explore the sometimes the fear of my sexuality, of being in the world. And I think he does that in a, a kind of an interesting way here where it's like, hey, I want you to be with me, a man and a man, and I'm going to mm-hmm. kill you after this is all done, which is very disturbing. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. And I think it's even further cemented as a, a, a real interpretation of it because he, when Swan admits that he still cares for Dorothea, this sends Nix off the deep end mm-hmm. and he basically turns on Swan again because he feels like this is a betrayal mm-hmm. that Swan still has feelings for for this woman Dorothea and uh, and so he freaks out attacks him with magic says fine I don't need you anyway and literally explodes his brain <laughs> Yeah, he's like exploding like body parts inside of his, but like it's like his colon and like other like parts are like, whoa, this is fucking crazy. And I think that the line that Nix uses for that is he's like, you know, this is just flesh. This is Mm -hmm. all that it is. It's just flesh. Why are you so, you know, why do you care so much about this flesh? Um, And so it's just a very interesting dichotomy of like, is our our, our souls important to us or is our physical body important to us? And then what lies after that? And, you know, you have this interesting sort of dynamic between the two of them. But then you also, on the other half of our uh, group, Damore is having this really fun fight scene with Butterfield. And then... When he, like, punches into the wall, he hits, like, one of the... Um, Electrical wires, yeah. Yeah, oh my god. He, like, electrocutes and the light it comes out of his, like, burned face. It's oh, just really gross. Oh, yeah, it's so gross. It's, like, blisters popping up out of his face. Yeah. I mean, it's nasty. Ugh. Yeah, it's really nasty. And Dorothea finds Damore's gun, and she comes in, and she shoots Nyx right in his third eye. A very impressive shot. But Nyx begins to transform into something that genuinely, in my opinion, defies description. <laughs> this is some real, like, H.P. Lovecraft stuff. <laughs> yeah. I do not know even where to begin to start describing this thing. It's it's really impressive because that I think is part of what makes movies like The Thing so effective is this sort of inability to comprehend <laughs> the like form of the thing that you're looking at. I, and so I was just going to say the same thing, George. It, it, when I watched it again, I was like, this totally reminds me of The Thing, like the way he's yeah. transforming and it's so cool. It's just like this, it's just a monstrosity. I mean, there's no other way to put it. It's just this grotesque, yeah, H.P. Lovecraft type of monstrosity that he essentially becomes. And he's like, I'm going to murder the world. You know, like his his thing yeah. now is like he was originally thinking, oh, I'm going to be a savior. Well, ah, no, I guess that changed. I'm going to murder everybody now. So yeah. 
And despite the brain explosion, Swan turns out to not quite be dead, and he uses the last of his energy and his magic to help Damore shove Nyx into the hole, which apparently goes into the mantle of the Earth, which is very cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he fa- he falls for a while. Like, you see that scene, and he's just falling. And into lava. Yeah, it's I'm like, like it's straight it's, lava, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Dorothea holds Swan in her, in her arms as he as he dies, and Damore sees that Nyx, who's hideously injured but still alive in there, has uh, he summons a whirlwind from the bottom of the hole, uh, which is rising, filled with lava. But that whirlwind not only basically like tears off Swan's face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Swan gets it. Yeah, he sure does, and uh, it seals up the hole, and so. Dorothea and Damore manage to escape the house. They walk into the desert. It's a great final shot, and it's a very satisfying ending, but it definitely leaves things open for the continuing adventures of Harry Damore. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a, dude, that's a series. I'm telling you, man. That's the continuing, Netflix, I'm yeah, here, yeah, man. Yeah, Call I, me. We the, got nothing but time the, now. The, so. the, the adventures of Harry Damore. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And, and honestly, it's just a very satisfying ending. So I want to use this opportunity to transition into a, sort of our wrap-up here. So, Ryan, why don't you tell the people why this is the best horror movie ever made? I, I think that this is the best horror movie ever made for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's Clive Barker. You, you cannot go wrong. I mean, this guy only directed three movies. And all three, I think, are really great in their own ways. But this one to me, is his standout film because I feel like this is where him as a director comes full circle in terms of what he's done. He uses all of his viscerality that he learned from Hellraiser. He uses the character development he learned from Nightbreed. And I feel like he finally has a story that kind of carries you through the entire thing, that makes you want to learn it. And again, this is easily the best magic horror film ever made. I don't think there's been any other horror film that really touches on magic like this one does. The cast is fantastic. We've touched upon that. The practical effects hold up insanely well. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say this is some of the best practical effects or probably besides the thing in terms of just how these practical effects still look and how they kind of, the viscerality of the violence still hits you. Um, And if you're a fan of film noir, I mean, God, like what other film? I mean, this, again, this, this just does hits on all those marks so well. It's such a fun movie, and I just, I really can't recommend it enough. It's it's truly, I think for many horror fans, I think it's a lost classic. I really do, in terms of the impact it really could have had if it had been released maybe in a different time, or in just even with a little bit more marketing pushed towards it, because it's just so much fun. It's so well done. And I really do believe like most horror fans that are going to watch are going to say, yeah, this is really good. I absolutely agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I don't think that it's unfair to say that I'm a sucker for a hard-boiled detective archetype. (laughs) And this has that in spades. You put that and you wrap it all up with some amazing horror moments that are done with great practical effects. Like you said, it's a fun story. It has a serious take on magic, which I really always appreciate. And it manages to take all these elements that I adore and blend them up into something that doesn't lose any of those flavors. You still, it doesn't become just a brown mess of of nastiness. You get, oh, is that a little bit of that Barker aesthetic that I taste? Mm -hmm. Oh, 
isn't that isn't that uh you know uh him being like a friggin awesome detective yeah, guy yeah, doing a yeah. bunch of investigation oh don't don't, <laughs> so, I, don't I get in a little bit of an action movie in here don't I get a little <laughs> bit of, yeah I mean it, it's very and again it's just you look at this and you're like why was this movie a bomb again like I, I again it kind of warps my mind a little bit uh, that audiences didn't take to this. And again, we touched upon it now. I think it's hard, too, for audiences to get back into it because it's so hard to find. And that's, I think, the biggest problem with mm-hmm. the film right now is that I believe that if more audiences had the chance to find this readily, if it was on Netflix, if it was on Hulu, if it was on a streaming service, I think you would hear horror fans coming out of the woodwork saying how good this movie was. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting dilemma because on the one hand, absolutely, the exposure that a movie like this can get from being on streaming services is unparalleled and it would be awesome to bring it to another another generation of fans but also it just really reminds me of the importance of physical media and you know if movies like this could vanish like unless people are archiving them and people are making sure that they hold on to physical versions of it you know it's really hard to find this already and I hope that it doesn't become even harder to find as more and more streaming services pop up and you know the dilution of the pool starts to happen more and more so it's it's, and and like we said I mean again three Clive Barker movies that's it mm -hmm. that's the only three movies he he directed and wrote obviously he's written and produced many more but the three that he's directed and wrote Hellraiser Nightbreeder or uh, Nightbreed and uh, Lord of Illusions, that's it. And so to me, it's like, this is the, 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 in his trilogy of films that he's done, I think this is easily the best one. It's, it, yeah. you know, it's funny. After I watched it, I remember, you know, I, I, I looked at my girlfriend. I was like, I fucking love this movie. It's still great. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's still just fucking great. It's so fun to watch. And I really hope horror fans take a, a decided effort to get back to it. And like you were saying too, man, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. This idea of a of a a, a more uh, you know a, a Dia Moore show for this character for this for this film, I actually think that could be a fucking hit because this is the type of movie that isn't so saturated that people know everything about it, but it's yeah. it's something that could be culty enough that people could go, oh, that's that's interesting, and go back and watch and go, oh yeah, I fucking like that movie, and then they'd be like, yeah, I want to see the show, and it could be very much a Cole Jack thing, and you could go and do th- this dude's adventures either either maybe before Lord of Illusions or after Lord of Illusions. Yeah, plenty of uh, plenty of story to explore there, absolutely. This was so much fun, Ryan. I want to thank you so much for coming on. And definitely, why don't you tell the people where they can find you? Because I really want to encourage people to check it out. Yeah, dude, thank you so much. I mean, it, this is such a... I, I remember this This will be in the quarantine, I guess, times or whatever, you know. But, uh, you know, I've been w- listening to a ton of podcasts and narrations. And I listened to your, your podcast. And I'm like, dude, this is the fucking coolest idea for a podcast uh, that I've heard in a long time. So... Just kudos to you, man, uh, on just oh, creating so a, an absolutely incredible show, George. It's it's really a lot of fun, and the way you dive in and 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 we talk about these films in depth, it's really cool. If you guys want to find me, you can find me at Your Horror Show. My show that I created is called Welcome to the Horror Show. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we're actually also on TikTok right now as well, so you can find us all at Your Horror Show, and our show co- is called Welcome to the Horror Show, and it is a horror anthology in the vein of Tales from the Crypt, Twilight Zone. We currently have three episodes right now, Ping, Turkey Slay, La Calavera are our three episodes. We're going to be having more, but come check them out. Um, our, our main landing page, I guess you can find those at, that's the easiest, is our Instagram, at Your Horror Show. Like I said, I definitely encourage people to go check them out. They're a lot of fun, um, and, uh, you know, it's free, unlike Quibi. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it is free for for right now. It is. I, I mean, yeah, I, exactly. we're, we're we're talking to production companies as we speak, so who knows? But yeah, it is yeah. it is free at the moment for sure. Well, yeah, you'd you'd be fools not to take advantage of that while you can. In yeah. the meantime, yeah, uh, and. Uh, for my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That same uh, username extends across Facebook and Instagram. And if you want to leave me a review that was even half as nice as Ryan's, uh, you can go ahead and do that on iTunes or Stitcher because it's very, very helpful for us in terms of getting the show in front of new people. So uh, do that. And also, uh, we have merch that's fun if you're into that sort of thing. So... All of these things can be found on the various social networks. You know how to do it. I believe in you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Everyone, thanks for listening. This was a lot of fun. Again, Ryan, uh, thanks for coming. Thank you, man. Bye. Bye.